Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about the primacy of the creative process. First, we'll meet one half of a dynamic designer-maker couple who've allowed their love for creating beautiful things to extend across all areas of their life together. What we do is so fundamental to each of us that how could we not take it home? And how could we not take the relationship into work? It's so, for good or for bad, it's so entwined that I can't see it any other way. Then we'll meet the founder of a Paris-based agency whose forward-thinking approach to design aims to nourish invention. We decided to have the Fridays off to be able to focus on something else, but something creative still, and taking the time to meet new creative people. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Tim Butcher is the co-founder of Fromental, a luxury design house renowned for its exquisitely handcrafted wallpapers and textiles. He founded the company alongside his wife and business partner, Lizzie Day in 2005, the same month they were married. With a shared passion for textiles and design, they intertwined their work and marriage, building Fromental into a studio renowned for originality and a commitment to craftsmanship. Tim stopped by Midori House to chat about the expansion of the brand and the importance of being driven by creative instincts rather than purely commercial considerations. He began by telling me how he and Lizzie balance their professional and personal lives. The reason it's worked and the reason we've managed to make it work on a personal level and a professional level is because I think both of us are gripped by the same sort of daemon in the the deep sense that this is what we want to do. It it drives both of us. So our relationship grew from this communication of finishing each other's visual ideas and understanding exactly what we were trying to make. So our relationship grew from a creative relationship and then evolved into just sort of a deeply entwined relationship. And I think what that leads to and what that gives license to is such a deep commitment to the work. Mm. If you, I, whenever I'm at the school gates and chatting to other parents and they're just saying, you know, what, you know, how on earth do you do that? How on earth do you combine together in you know, so many aspects of your life without you know, it being damaging in some way? And I, I just can't see it any other way. What we do is so fundamental to each of us that how could we not take it home? And how could we not take the relationship into work? It's so, for good or for bad, it's so entwined that I can't see it any other way. Well, I'm here to sort of pull away at some of those (laughs) intertwined threads because I haven't really asked you specifically, what does the business make, produce, do day to day? Paint a bit of a picture for us. On the more, you know, the base level, the more mundane level, but the very practical level, we make uh, hand-painted, hand-embroidered, printed as well, bespoke wallpapers. Everything that we make is made to order. So there's an inherent sort of authenticity to each piece that we make, which has a satisfaction, but also has a value, which I think retains a uniqueness in the wider marketplace. It ends up being in the marketplace of luxury because it's not inexpensive to do and to to make. We maintain and we feel strongly that there is a deep and inherent value in doing that in terms of the beauty of it, 
but also the satisfaction for our clients, end users, people who put this into their homes. We made last year about, I think it's about 840 wallpapers. 841, to be exact, because I'm a slightly geeky data-led <laughs> person in the way that I approach this. And each one of those was not a product off a shelf. Each one of those was an interaction with a designer, an end client, a specific space, which had an involved conversation and its own creative challenge and its own creative moment in working out what is that wallpaper going to be to transform that room in the way that somebody is commissioning and desiring that room to be. So, you know, you can take it back on one level. Yes, we are selling a product. That product is a wallpaper. But it's also a wonderful process to create just that wallpaper as it should be for that customer. So hmm. the way and the way that we do that throughout the organization, there's a uh, quite an involved and iterative process with every, whether we call it sale or every project. And each time there's an engagement and a service about what will be created from that. And, you know, and, and the growth of the very important aspect of the company, which is its organisation, its systems, its people, its ethos, is to manage that process from beginning to end with, on the one hand, the commercial necessity of an efficiency, but with a value that we want to do it as well as we can and create the result which is as beautiful as possible. Now, maybe not each one of those 841 project, products <laughs> or commissions were, was, a, was a different client, I don't know, but clearly many hundreds of clients, mm. presumably they're spread far and wide. I, I was going to ask you about a typical, in inverted commas, customer, but maybe the way to phrase the question correctly would be, is the typicality that they are atypical, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Does that matter? Do you guys have to have in mind your consumer in an abstract way or actually is it really important project to project commission to commission that you empty your head of expectations and deliver something each time that is uniquely suited to that person you're talking to there's two sorts of aspects to it if you were to go into every project with a blank canvas in order for us to do what we do well we get the freedom to produce a wide gamut of styles and aesthetics, which all have the one running thread of being of the highest quality, both from a design sense and, and a made sense. And that gives us quite a widespread to be able to start the conversation with each client. Because primarily we work with interior designers who are representing their clients as well as their clients. And we have to be designers for designers. So... There's no right or wrong about any of their tastes and aesthetic choices. But we have to have the toolkit to respond to those different choices as well as we can and deliver it well. So stylistically, there's certainly no fixed area, although, you know, by our nature and by the nature of what we do, one has to have an appreciation of decoration. So there's a decorousness even to our more uh, simplified patterns. Not everything has to be bold, maximalist and vivid and 
you know, peopled with layers and layers of pattern and object, etc. Although that's a big part of what we do because that's, you know, that, but that's probably close to some of our own aesthetic choices. But I guess if there's any thread which must tie all of our clients together, then there needs to be an appreciation of craftsmanship, beauty, quality, and a desire to express something through their own decor. So there has to be to some degree, if you like, I don't know, I won't say not sophistication, but appreciation in order for there to be an engagement. There must be one or two. You said you was that you can't sort of judge other designers' design choices. There must be the odd one where you're like, uh, are you sure about this one? You have to, is, that, is that a bit of, what, is, what do you call design diplomacy that you guys need to do? Maybe? There is a huge amount of that, but I think it's quite healthy. I mean, some of the briefs over the years, yeah, are pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty... Outland, uh, outlandish? <laughs> t- testing. <Okay. laughs> very, very well put. And we, when we, we have the conversation internally about that, it's quite an interesting thing to do because a lot of people, when you're expressing your own design and you have a strong, strong view about it, it's quite hard to step outside of that. But it's quite an interesting experiment to do so. And the way that what you have to bring to that is, OK, I'm going to withhold judgment on even a taste level an aesthetic level, I'm going to hear that brief and we're going to do it as damn well as we can. You know, so you might not like it, but you can't deny it's well done. Very good. You could put. You should put that. You could put, use that as a as, as a banner. Just you quickly. don't have to like it. Well, this is good. This is good. People with good taste, I think, often say that. Tell me a little bit about your studios, because obviously mm. you're I think you're based in London primarily, yep. but you have obviously studios elsewhere. We know you have this deep interest in Chinese mm. uh, wall coverings. People see some of this chinoiserie, incredibly beautiful. Um, you obviously have a presence there, but in other markets as well. Is that very important that your footprint is? in some of these markets yeah. about which you are so passionate because it's all well and good in the abstract to talk about these things, but you need to sort of be present yeah. in order to have that authority and that command? Absolutely. I mean, some of these things happen through a sort of adaptation of chance, if mm. you like. I, in a previous role when working in, you know, making fabrics for fashion designers, I ended up travelling to China a lot in the in the late 90s and discovering the traditional Chinese painting as its own art form, craft and beauty. And, and I absolutely fell in love with that. I didn't know anything about you know, 18th century Chinese wallpapers at the time. When I discovered them, they, they were so inherently beauty that I really you know, became obsessed with them as, as, as a medium and as a potential and also just as a, as a, a historic artefact. The fact, you know, I, you know, my, my dad dragged me around so many country houses as a kid, but, and I, and I, and, and none of those Chinese rooms really went in in quite the same way. I took them for granted, as one does as a child, but then over time, I became I started to appreciate them in all sorts of different ways. Just the level of beauty, the level of skill, the vivid decoration, but also for you know the the, the historic story, how they came to be part of. The China trade, what the China trade meant for in a historical context and how that influenced tastes historically is a fascinating subject to explore. 
you know you can look at it in all sorts of different ways it's but it's a historic fact and it and it, and it had influence and the same thing grabbed me when i ended up spending time in china and i quite enjoyed when we started the business it felt like there was a historical precedent to be rediscovering this new kind of synergy of bringing chinese uh, decorative forms and art into a Western space in a way where you get this really interesting visual synergy or clash of, of, of cultures in a, in a very aesthetic sense. It's, and exploring that is always fun. On a business side, that then leads you to be there a lot. And I was travelling to China a lot in the early 2000s and that coincides with a massive growth in the economy in China and investments in property, which leads you to meeting people who are developing properties and hotels and opportunities arise, you follow them. And so we've got quite a big part of our business. We've got our office in Hong Kong and we do a lot of business throughout Asia as well as making there. And that's just grown in the way that most plants grow through being present, seeing opportunities, following what's right in front of you and enjoying the challenge of it. And so, you know, I think on a personal level, it excited me in the sense of travel. Immersing oneself in other cultures is undoubtedly good for your own growth. It's, it's fascinating. It's interesting. And in a similar way, you know, we're present in other markets. Um, but on the moving more towards the commercial side of why you make these decisions, if you're, if you're making a product which is for a very small percentage of the population from a luxury and commercial price point of view, you need to be very international very quickly. If you're operating in a very narrow niche, you need to be global because that niche is spread around the globe and you need to find more of it. It's also a very international niche. People of you know, high net worth are international people. So you, you sort of you get pulled into some of that as much as planning and choosing to do some of that. Which is, I guess, a happy meeting. We're short on time, Tim. I could talk to you all day. I want to just ask a little bit about if we sort of put a future-facing lens on this and just talk briefly. I know, obviously, as well as the wall coverings, you also create some decorative objects. I think there's some furniture collaborations maybe on the way which which it, it seems a very logical step but tell us a little just a couple of quick insights into what you're most excited about what that growth story continues to look like well i think as ever lizzie and i have had the choice and freedom to follow our desire as well as our the most practical choices and i think any creative operating in business would be foolish to deny that a huge amount of the choices are taken for a creative imperative rather than necessarily sitting down with the financial advice and asking whether it's a really good business idea. And some of these things allow you to maintain your passion for what you do. So I was a trained weaver. Lizzie is a self-trained weaver and tapestry uh, artist and has always loved Needlepoint. And through COVID, we were in touch with some studios in India and we've always loved Needlepoint. And so we established making some Needlepoint pieces in styles which have, you know, there's, there's a historic thread to it. Uh, the furniture pieces of uh, Jean Le Saint and uh, uh, Pierre Charot from the, the Maison Vert, two phenomenal uh, inspirational pieces, and we wanted to go back and revisit that. So we worked with a Parisian furniture maker and designer called Rank, and we produced a number of pieces which have these sighted, placed, hand-made uh, needlepoint upholsteries. And I think from a design ethos, and I think in a real demand ethos, they are such a beautiful object. You know, I would like to see that 
develop into something which has more commercial footing. But I'm not overly concerned that it doesn't because it continues to feed the expression of what we want to do. We're also, I'm also a believer that they will find their time. Mm. I think a lot of creative work, it's, you know, it needs to have it now, not just being new. And I, I believe they will find their time. And the exploration of that, even if it just feeds our own souls, is something which doesn't phase me on a commercial sense. I say that just to remove the internal requirement for it to do more than wash its face. But we'll see. In that <laughs> exactly. <sense. laughs> uh, well, we started off talking about a philosophy of, I don't know, design and beauty and storytelling, and you've continued to, appropriately enough, spin a pretty good yarn throughout, Tim. It's been, <laughs> it's been lovely to, to chat with you. Thanks for coming to see us. Thank you. That was Tim Butcher, the co-founder and creative director of Fromental. You can learn more by heading to fromental.co.uk. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Leslie David is the creative force behind her eponymous studio, a creative agency based in Paris, which she launched almost a decade ago. Prior to establishing the business, Leslie had a successful career as an independent graphic designer, artist and illustrator. That diverse background provided a strong foundation across various creative disciplines, which she incorporated into the work of her studio. Today, Leslie and her team specialise in visual identity, brand content and art direction, including for businesses familiar to this programme, like our green-fingered friends at So Vital. Leslie stopped by Midori House while on a recent trip to London and began by telling me about the start of the journey. I've always wanted to be an artist or, or to work in the arts scene when I was a kid because my parents were artists too, so I grew up in this word, community, and I was really surrounded by beauty when I was a kid. So I knew I was going to be a creative, but I didn't know what type. And when I was a teenager, I was really, really fan of Bjork. And curiosity bring me to read all the little credits you have in a CD. And I read that M&M was doing the graphic design. So I was kind of curious because, of course, the identity and the image was like, crazy to me and like very very interesting and appealing and so I start digging into like okay what is graphic design what are MAM doing and so I started understanding this part of the creative world and so that's how I started doing studies around graphic design and then my idea was to be an independent for the future but actually yeah life bring me to create a studio because it's really important to have collaborators and not to be yourself alone. And if you want to be able to reply to a lot of different commissions, a lot of different clients, you, you need to have an help of like different creative people around you. So that's how I started creating my studio, one by one, finding like super interesting creative people with amazing skills to help me building new ideas, basically. I think that's always really interesting, the process by which you continue to collaborate with creative people, to draw inspiration, whilst servicing the needs of, of clients. Lots of people talk about, is there potentially a compromise? Do you have to compromise your personal creative principles in order to, to service that client base? I imagine you would say, absolutely not, it's not about that. But tell me a bit about how that actually works, because creative people 
I always find it really interesting to hear how they yeah. how they reconcile that's, those different pressures. That's the goal, <laughs> yeah. I guess. No, for me, it's it's really my uh, motivation and my first goal when I start a new project and when I accept a new new client is the way this client will understand the importance of creativity in the studio and in my practice. That's something I really don't want to put on the side. And of course, we work for brands that want to sell products and and to be in this conception world. But like I think we are there to serve beauty in this world and our vision is really the vision of the studio and, and my vision needs to be understood also. And that's one of the main consideration to me when I accept a project. Mm-hmm. Like, do we understand each other with the client I have in front of me? And is he going to trust us? So for me, that's really important. And of course, having a personal practice on the side is also very important for me and uh, we are trying to keep this in mind always at studio even with my collaborators so two years ago we started working on a four days basis a week so basically we decided to have the Fridays off to be able to focus on something else but something creative still so I don't know doing ceramic lessons doing photography on the side and also taking the time to meet new creative people. And that's a formula that is really working well Mm. for me, I think. And uh, of course, when we are in like a peak time of work, we work on Fridays. But for me, it's a really good balance to have. That's very enlightened. And I think you're kind of ahead of the curve doing that when you did it because that's something obviously now people are talking about with a lot more <laughs> a lot more a lot more vigor give us the the rough idea then as the of how the creative process works for i mean i was going to say a typical project and yeah there's, there's, there's no there's, there's, there's no, no, no typical thing. project that's but just thing. you know from pitch to delivery of the final work what are a couple of pointers along the way things that tend to be similar depending on the project mm-hmm. one of the similarity i could pick would be the importance of the first creative part and this first creative immersion into a brand or a brief or um, a commission that we have. And I always, when we do timeline of a project, I always put the most big part of the time on this creative process, these first weeks of digging into many, many possibilities and we will try, I don't know how many, but like it depends, of course, but we, we try all the routes we want to, to take and of course then we select and we define a path. For me, that's the most important part of the process and then everything goes from this part and like, for example, I know you know Jack Lewis from Sovital. When we've been working with him, of course, also, I mean, the first, first important part is talking and understanding the clients. I would start with that. But <laughs> after doing all the chats and understanding the project, asking millions of questions and just really try to understand the vision of the clients, then digging into like the creative part for a few weeks and not talking to the client at this point, just like being merged in this world we are creating and then presenting it to the client. It's always funny when a few years after a project is launched, when I go back to this first presentation 
and I see some details that are there now in the world. And it's, it's quite emotional because like when I go to the first presentation of Glossier, for instance, it seems clumsy, it seems not there yet, but there are some details that are already there and that we've been evolving uh, with the clients, of course, and like with different rounds of presentation. But it's, it's always nice to see that the idea was there on the first step. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, no, and do you have that thing where your notes, if you see your notes or, a, I don't know, a, a session, a, an idea session that you've done, it almost looks or sounds like somebody else has done it? Do you have that feeling sometimes, yeah. but even with your own work? It's weird that that yeah, happens. Yeah, it's so weird. After a project is launched, I always like to look back at the process and even like talk about the process on social media, post things about the work on the first place, because I think it's also super interesting for people to understand the process in a way. Yeah, well, that, this is the thing I find interesting about people who do creative work. Often people say, well, what's important? Is it just the outcome? Because there's work at the end, a finished project, whether it's a brand identity or packaging or a campaign, whatever it might be. Or is the process important? But I guess it sounds like you're one of those people for whom the process and the outcome, it's its all part of the same thing. You, you can't have the outcome without the process, correct? No, of course So not. it's very integrated. Yeah. And how tricky is it Leslie if you're working so you gave the example of Servital who, uh, Jack who's been on this program of course a new business super innovative really smart really clever but then you might be working with say a Chanel a storied brand heritage brand with some very fixed principles about how it <laughs> likes to portray itself do you have to change your approach or actually is the secret that you mustn't change your approach whether it's a heritage brand or whether it's a, a startup I think the approach is similar, but the brief is different. <laughs> so, of course, we won't try to chat with a client as much when a brand is there and is already really famous because, like, you have books, you have magazines talking about the brand. I mean, you, are, you, know, you know the brand already. And, of course, you can dig into informations, and, but it's already there. When you start working on a new project, you need to create something, you need to create a story, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. <laughs> same but different. I mean, the creativity is the same, but the process mm. is different because, of course, when you work with Chanel, the story is already there. You will work for a campaign. Of course, you tell a story for this precise campaign, but the story of the brand is there and you need to work with, like, principles, elements that, you can't really decide or, or choose or redesign. So you need to take that in consideration. And and you need to work with constraints, which I love, actually, because for me, constraints can really help my brain to be creative because I can focus on, like, the creative part. And so there is, like, a frame that is already there, which is not the case when you do branding because you need to create the frame yourself, which is quite scary because you need to be able to take so many decisions for this particular brand, like the color, the, 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 the layout, the font, the symbol, the website. I mean, when you create a brand, you create like a personality with layers and asperities and mood. And so, yeah, it's, it's lit by creativity, but it's not the same process at all. No, it's interesting. And I think that idea that there can almost be not too much creative freedom, because creatives love to have freedom to express themselves. But that idea of having to work within those guardrails, to have that external discipline is, is actually quite helpful. Just on a sort of tangential point, 
lots of creatives that I'm talking to, obviously we talk about AI, talk about artificial intelligence. It's a bit boring, but I do think it's interesting because some of the work you do, it's a tool that could be super useful. But then there is this narrative, oh, you know, Leslie, you know, we won't need creatives in a few years because AI will do everything. Where, where do you stand about it? Are you excited that it's a tool that can make your work more efficient, that might help you look at things differently. You shook your head, I should say, Charles. <laughs> That's the idea that it can take it can take the creator's jobs. But where, where where do you stand on this one? I'm not scared. For me, it's a tool we need to embrace. We need to understand, take in consideration. But I don't think it will replace good creative people. Of course, people will use. AI to replace some creative roles, but truly creative brains and artists can't be replaced and they will use this tool to create new images and new story and and that's the exciting thing for me. Of course, I started doing AI and I tried myself and I was pretty amazed at the beginning and then I was really disappointed by the result of the images because... I mean, you need to have a cultural uh, knowledge and a professional knowledge to really achieve the image you have in mind. And if you don't have, like, the good prompts, AI has bad taste, really, because, like, it's generated <laughs> by, like, the millions of images there on the web. Of course, there's good images, but there's also a lot of bad images. And so it's just like an average, <laughs> you well, know, of it. all a, these images. It's an aggregator and it, it doesn't, it's, you're exactly right. I've not heard it put so so crisply as that, but it, it doesn't have taste. It doesn't no. know, it doesn't know so what's, you need, what's good. I mean, you need someone to, to, to bring taste to AI. That was Leslie David, founder and creative director of the Leslie David Studio. You can find out more and see some of the incredible projects she mentioned there and more besides by heading to leslie-david.com. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard and assistance from Sarah Nichol. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, email Laura on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>